0: I don't know about you but sometimes I have trouble sleeping through the night. I wake up in the dark and begin to fret about something I might have said or done or left undone or about something entirely beyond my control and then I thrash about in that nether world between wakefulness and sleep. I can only imagine how fitfully Jacob must have slept that night in the open desert between Beersheba and Haran. The chapters prior to the one we read today tell the story of Jacob up to this point. A man on the run, desperate, troubled, lonely. He feared for his life because he had cheated his brother Esau twice. First, by persuading him to trade his birthright, his inheritance, for a bowl of stew. And then by tricking his blind father into bestowing what should have been Esau's blessing as the elder son. The stone beneath his head was no pillow. It was a jagged defense against a marauding lion or a raging brother. Jacob stops for the night in that place, not because it appears to be holy, but because it was simply too dark to go on. The sun, we're told, had set. Weary, hurting, hunted, afraid for his life, Jacob lay down. And it was there on that unlikeliest night of his life and in the strangest of places that he encountered the reality of God's transcendent presence and God's faithfulness. A vision of angels ascending and then descending upon the very place where he lay revealed that his misspent life was somehow, somehow caught up into the very life of God. His betrayal, guilt, fear, and flight were absorbed within an experience of divine intimacy. His life, which had been a curse at home, was to become a blessing to many, not because of anything he had done, but because of the nature and will of God revealed in a ladder full of angels. Brother Robert Lesperance tells of a true story told to him by a friend, a therapist and fellow retreat leader, who specializes in treating veterans suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder. At one weekend retreat, the therapist noticed a particularly distraught veteran and sought him out during one of the breaks. The former soldier told him that he was a Vietnam veteran and that he had participated in the murder of 500 Vietnamese civilians, including men, women, children, and infants. What some of us will remember as the infamous My Lai Massacre. His life was, of course, destroyed as well, living but entirely without hope. Nothing lay before him but guilt and sorrow and shame, repentance, remorse, more than he could bear. He believed he was simply and completely beyond the pale. Well, during the course of the weekend, something happened. The tormented man was visibly changed by an encounter with what he could only call when asked about what had happened, the man said he really couldn't say except that he now understood that in some inexplicable way, his being in that place and at that time and with those people in that Vietnamese village at that moment of unspeakable horror somehow involved something much greater than himself. Now, this understanding did not, in the slightest way, absolve his moral guilt, but it was somehow his time in that village that remained with him and tormented him. It's somehow been a part of something more there. There was something more there than he had been able to perceive then. And it has haunted him since. At My he found himself where he had never asked to be, afraid and overwhelmed, participating in something he could never have imagined and would never understand. And yet now he knew that there was also a presence of other, a gathering of all in all and that the other was both separate, fully inclusive. And everything looked different from this perspective. His sorrow, his guilt, shame, and remorse were all absorbed and held with the most improbable gift of divine intimacy. He was able to see his victims and himself with the eyes of Christ through the lens of divine compassion. Surely in the eyes of Christ, me should never have happened, any more than the daily atrocities we see in our morning paper and in which we find ourselves complicit. Nor by the lens of divine compassion should Jacob's brother and father have been betrayed, Any more than we betray and grieve or hurt our families. And yet, Jacob and the Vietnam veteran had been assured of a reality truer than our own brokenness, our own sin, complicity, and failings, and that is the faithful and abiding presence of God constantly taking up into the divine realm all that hurts, divides, threatens, and destroys, and returning only dignity, justice tempered with mercy, abiding connection, unfailing hope, unfailing love, and perpetual hope. It would be years before Jacob would take hold of even the first rung of that reality. Instead of returning to make amends with his father and brother, he continued to flee to his mother's country where he would himself be tricked and bound in servitude to his future father-in-law, whom he would in turn betray, and then to flee once again, this time, to the land of his father, his home, the place which God had promised in the dream to deliver. And even then, he only cautiously trusted the divine promise. As he came to the boundary waters, he sent his servants and livestock on ahead in hopes they might appease his brother's anger. Perhaps in case God didn't come through. And even then, Jacob remained behind on the distant side of the river where he spent the night wrestling as we all remember with a stranger whom he eventually came to recognize as God. It was only during that struggle that Jacob was finally twisted into the image of the man God had intended him to become. Morning came, And he limped toward his brother, his head finally bowed. When Jesus speaks of the weeds among the wheat, his listeners understand that it's not until the fruit is heavy on the grain that the harvesters can distinguish between what is life-giving wheat and what usurps life, weeds. The grain of wheat finally bows under its own great weight, revealing the goodness that is in it. Jacob approached his brother on his knees, remorseful, offering the heavy fruit of his life, the blessings promised and delivered to him and yet there could be no exchange for the wrongs he had done. He would never be able to undo what had been done. He was powerless to change what he had set in motion with his duplicity, arrogance, and self-serving ways. And so Jacob and his entire family re-entered the promised land humbled and at the mercy of Esau, who had himself in the intervening years become strong enough to secure his own revenge. Yet, Esau instead bounded across long fields toward the heavily bowed Jacob, lifted him from his knees, gathered him into his arms, kissed him and wept to see him again. The grain had grown in Esau as well. A seed of the divine life, self-giving life, is implanted deep within each one of us, at the very center of our beings. We may not always live into it. We may not frequently live into it. But we cannot destroy it. And we are never abandoned to grow on our own. It wasn't that Jacob or Esau or the Vietnam vet were good people, deserving of good things. The truth they came to discover is that buckets of divine forgiveness and courage and justice and mercy and wisdom and compassion are perpetually delivered by something like a bucket brigade of angels exchanging what hurts us for what helps us grow. So that each Day. each one of us might bear fruit worthy of our neighbor's hunger and worthy of the one whose seed we bear. Amen.